Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 209 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen. This week I was joined by a photographer living in the Bay Area in California, Richard Wong. Richard has been a prolific landscape photographer for over 20 years and has seen the industry shift significantly over that time. He also happens to be an expert in search engine optimization. Richard began his journey in the film days and his approaches to photography have mostly remained true to that approach in the digital age. In this episode, Richard and I discuss some fairly heavy and controversial topics, including marketing and search engine optimization, negativity on social media, balancing photography and home life, and diversity in landscape photography. Over on Patreon this week, Richard and I tackle the uncomfortable talk topic of plagiarism in landscape photography. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Richard Wong, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's a it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Yeah, and I'm sure most listeners would at least vaguely recognize your name because I've said it so many times thanking you for your support over on Patreon. Yeah, it's uh yeah, I Maybe I'm the only one, but I'm. I guess I discovered you on Twitter. I, I think you had followed me on Twitter um, for some time, but I don't always check who follows me. But then I was looking back one day. Oh wait, this F-stop collaborate podcast. What's this thing? About? So then I, I listened to probably like six podcasts in one day. Like when I clicked through on your link, yeah, I think like a day or two later, I subscribed to it. It was just like um, I really a lot of cool, interesting photographers on there but your stuff interviewing i felt um no offense but i felt it was more edgy than some of the other <laughs> photography podcasts <laughs> maybe due to your your um f-bomb usage but <laughs> but um but but anyways yeah i i've been a subscriber ever since cool man well i'm glad that the uh the profanity at least it did me some good i i'm sure you've noticed i've tried to tone that down a bit over the years <laughs> <laughs> I have noticed, yeah. If uh, anyone's listened to the beginning to the end, it, like it's um, the format is pretty similar. But I would say the the dialogue it's probably a lot smoother now than, than at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Cool, man. Well, so for people that uh, may not be familiar with you and your photography, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I was born and raised in Southern California. Um, went to school down there. Then when I was in college, I I discovered photography. I on family vacations, I just started taking, um, you know, snapshots on film because that's, you know, digital didn't exist back then. Um, then, you know, a year or two after that, I actually got a digital camera, but I spent most of my time still shooting film. And I actually learned how to do photography, quote unquote, professionally on slide film, um, you know, kind of at the same time when I picked up a digital camera. And, um, you know, over the course of a few years, I was spending all of my free time, like most people, doing photography. Um, then for me, you know, for many years, it was kind of an outlet because my, my dad had Parkinson's disease. He was diagnosed um, age 42 when I was in high school. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah. I'm so, 42. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I'm right behind you. <laughs> yeah. So I, just to think now, you know, like, um, you know, you and I could have that tomorrow and like it would change yes. the course of your life. And like, um, so you can imagine it was kind of difficult, you know, having a mixing family life, being at that young age with a, a dad with a neurological disease, you know, which ended up um, ending his life a few years ago. Um, so, you know, dealing with all that stuff and, you know, all the family issues that go with it. You know, I found that photography um, was a perfect outlet for me. Um, so, you know, I pursued it, you know, to 
you know, for mental health, um, it made me feel good, but also, you know, share it, you know, share my travels with my friends and you know, family and all that stuff. Um, but then after doing that for a few years, I discovered, oh, people actually earn a living doing this. They stock photography, assignment photography. <laughs> the golden, like, the golden age. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I was coming in this towards like the middle of the end of it. So like, um, yeah, so literally I spent like the next decade literally like shooting quote-unquote stock photography um, while pursuing landscape photography too. Um, and so for a few years there, I was doing pretty well and, um, you know, it you know, you know brought in some pretty good income and basically paying for my travels and, you know, and all that stuff. So it was um, good for a few years. Then as everyone else knows, the, you know, stock market tanked. Um, probably, I would say, you know, the worst part of it started coming probably, I don't know, sometime after the recession. I, I don't know when, but like, you know, right now it's it's like hardly anything. It's right. Although I've heard some people can still do well at it, but I think it's like volume. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think the two types of people that do very well, you either shoot like the type of stuff that you could easily cut out because if you think about who licenses photos, they're right. graphic designers or um, you know, a real estate website or somebody that has like a commercial use for it. Mm-hmm. So the you know landscape stuff, you know, it's kind of generic but it's not really as applicable for commercial use um so that sort of stuff you're you're probably not making a good decision by uploading you know marine lake for example to like um you know these micro stock sites there's like a million of them there and it's not you know it's not that commercially viable but then if you shoot a lot of stuff on white backgrounds or you do a lot of art you know architecture photos that sort of stuff can do very well i would imagine um yeah i think also the other two types of um licensing that do well if you have a certain set of clients commercial clients that you know happen to license some um, pretty big licenses and all that stuff i would think you know if you're licensing directly the quantity would be less but the the overall you know dollar per sale would be a lot higher right yeah no i think i feel like it's kind of like any other aspect of trying to make a living at photography it's you have to put yourself in the shoes of your potential customers right and so like what problem you're trying to solve and so you know if you can try to create a product that um, helps them make their lives easier then it's you're probably going to do pretty good yeah yeah that's the thing like um yeah you know i've um you know i come from a marketing background i i went to school for marketing and i've done that for a living for many years and um but you know, on a sales side, I, I, you know, that's something that's kind of foreign to me. <laughs> I'm not a sales guy. I'm a marketing guy. You know, there's a difference. Some people may not know that, but, you know, there is a big difference between sales and marketing. Um, sales includes customer service and, you know, that sort of thing, you know, actually dealing with people. And, um, you know, I, I'm finding that I'm able to do better now by addressing my customers' needs as opposed to putting what I want out there and just hoping somebody buys it or, um you know, I'm going to do what's fun and I'm going to try to make money at it as opposed to deliberately trying to solve problems. I think if you're putting stuff out there and trying to solve somebody's problem, I think you'll have a lot more success. I mean, it, there's ways of having fun doing it too. But I think if you only you know want to be an artist, then you're probably just going to be an artist and not really make any money, in my opinion. Well, let, let's talk about um, some of your background. I, I know you're not doing photography full-time, that you're you're working in the kind of marketing uh, realm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you do a lot of uh, search engine optimization work, yes. um, which gives you a huge advantage over most other photographers who, no offense to most people, but I feel like it's one of those things that a lot of people just don't fully understand and don't do very well. And 
So I'd love to hear about um, how you've been able to kind of leverage your your professional background into helping you know sustain and or um, improve your photography business. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I um yeah I went to school for marketing. That I worked in advertising agencies for for several years after I. I graduated from school. Um, that was before SEO and all these other things and social media in that, that word didn't even exist back then. Um, so, you know, digital was pretty brand new if anyone did it all back then. So, you know, I think um, for me, you know, I did it professionally, you know, as a day job, you know, working on the agency side, doing SEO work and all that stuff for you know, pretty big websites and big clients. Um, I kind of use my website just kind of as a testing ground to, you know, validate some of the stuff I'm going to do for professional work or just kind of try it out. Hey, does it, is it going to work at all? Period. Because, you know, if you're going to do SEO professionally for corporations that could potentially lose a lot of money, um, if you've actually never tried it before or think it might be risky, it's kind of best you, you know, try it on something smaller scale that there's minimal risk to it. So having my own websites, like, you know, there's basically no risks other than my personal reputation, I guess, if you want to call it that, um, to test stuff. So I've, I've literally tested a lot of different stuff over the years on, on not just my photography website, but other websites I've built or, or you know, things like that. What, I mean, you don't have to go into all the details or default divulge all of your secrets, but what are some of the things that you see uh, either working well or that you see a lot of people um, just being totally clueless about in terms of landscape and nature photography and, and search engine optimization? Yeah, this question comes up a lot. I get asked by a lot of photographers, um, not just people that are friends of mine, um, but I get asked by a lot of strangers too privately about this. And one of the biggest misconceptions I would say for somebody that doesn't actively do SEO or know much about it, they would Google something and they would say, hey, Google's brought up 57 million pages of results. How can I compete with this? But if you actually, if you actually look at what sites rank for whatever you typed in, if you just, I don't know, if you type in Matt Payne photography, just as, as an example, like it may bring up, I don't know how many, probably millions of results. But realistically, you look, if you go past the first page, nobody is beyond that is optimized for Matt Payne photography. So really, you're competing against 10 pages or less or maybe 15 pages for that query. So some people use, you know, that Google search results number as a way to dissuade them from doing SEO at all. Oh, it's too competitive. I'll never rank. Mm. Um, some, some search queries, yeah, you probably never will rank. But for a lot of stuff, yeah, you can rank because if you look at who you're competing with, it's actually not 50 million pages. It's probably 10 or less. Yeah, so, so I would say that that's probably the biggest misconception I've heard and the most common one I've heard um, from people that just you know haven't started or don't want to start doing it. One of the things I've noticed is um, a lot of people just not using common sense keywords in their images and their and their pages. It's, it seems like that would be a very easy place to start is making sure you have relevant keywords that also match the content that's on the page. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's kind of a tricky one, especially for like the fine art prints. If you look through, and I don't want to name names, but if you just look through the list at a uh, well, widerangegalleries.com, for example. <laughs> you know, I, I just use that because everyone on there sells prints. Well, I mean, you both you and I use Jack's site, so yeah, yeah, we all, yeah, that's why I have to bring it because you use it too. So you know, like, um, so just click through any photographer's site on there, and um, you know. To varying degrees, photographers create art names for their photos. Um, I do a mix. I do some of it, 
um, because I, there's only so many times you can repeat, you know, temperate rainforest on a website. Right. Yeah. So, so then, uh, then I'll start throwing in, you know, making up some fake art names or whatever. Um, or if something really speaks to me, but there's some photographers that literally do not describe any of their photos by calling it what it is. If it's, if it's Moraine Lake, what do you got to call it? Like your turquoise beauty? I, I, I don't know. But yeah, if you were to optimize it for Moraine Lake, you could actually get some real traffic for it from Google, for instance. Right. Yeah, like for me, like last week, I probably got like 30 clicks just for the, the search Moraine Lake. Like if I didn't name it Moraine Lake, I wouldn't get zero. Right. Yeah, Yeah, that's a tricky way. one too, right? Especially if you um, want to be sensitive about location sharing. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's the other thing. Like some of the stuff, or, or I guess a lot of the stuff you shoot, especially in the Southwest, you probably... Yeah, that's a good that's a good reason to um, you know create an art name for it. But then there's some stuff that's just so obvious that like um, right half dome I mean, like you're, who tunnel you're view in Yosemite. Yeah, yeah like <laughs> why wouldn't you call it? What else are you gonna call it? Right. Yeah. yeah it's, no, that's... It, so there's kind of a fine line, I think, between um, being literal and just straight up being cheesy. Like if um, you know, calling tunnel view something completely random, well, like frosted flakes or something, I don't know something stupid like that. It I mean, the cool thing about um, jack system is that you do have multiple fields that you can put descriptors in like location title caption so i mean there's other ways you can gamify the search engine optimization but i'm always surprised um to see people that are holding themselves out as trying to sell their work and they have zero text and like no relevant keywords or titles and it's like you know no one's going to find your stuff yeah, yeah. I think if you were to look through, you know, all of that same list there, the what the people that appear to be doing better are the ones that have more text, like you said. Like, um, you know, like having more text necessarily is not going to make it great, but it's certainly better than the guy that has zero text. Because you know, Google and Bing and all those search engines, they're largely sorry, they're largely text-based um, search engines. So they are getting better images, but at the same time, image recognition will only take you so far. Right. And especially for your bio, if you have, if you have nothing on your bio, how do they know who you are? Right. And it's not just a Google thing too. I mean, if you look through any photographer's website, I, I would say that there's probably up to fifty percent of any fifty um, percent of photographers that literally do not have a. They may have like a picture and say three words on their bio, and that's it. You know nothing about them. And there's some people that do that because they feel, oh, pictures say a thousand words. Well, that may be true, but at the same time, they have no idea who you are as an artist. If you um, want to connect with people and market yourself as an artist, if they know nothing about you, they're probably not going to buy your work because it's, right. you know, they want a human connection there. And they want to have trust that you're actually going to fulfill their order. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing too. Yeah, there's there's a million photographers out there and some of whom are, you know, probably way more talented than you and I, but, you know, they... I mean, that's a given in my case. Yeah, 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 me too. Way more talented like, than me. Yeah, but, you know, they may have put zero information out there. They just kind of expect people to go to them or they don't care at all, which is fine. Um, but, you know, if you don't care about making money, that's totally fine. Just don't wonder why you don't when you literally do not put any information out there. Right. Yeah, and, uh, so, you know, search engine optimization has definitely changed a lot over the years. I know Google is, you know, thrown the wrench in a lot of people's ideas and plans you know they used to heavily weight backlinks and things like that what have you seen kind of pass the test of time in terms of what kind of works in terms of getting your stuff to rank highly 
you know, the stuff that's always stood the test of time is having good sound site architecture. So that's one of the reasons why wide range galleries does well, because, you know, all of the pages are linked together in a logical manner. And, you know, for the most part, unless you intentionally do this, the sites are not particularly deep. They're not like 20 clicks deep to find content. Um, just to give a little bit of advice, I guess, to your listeners, um, generally speaking, your homepage is the most viable page on your site for most people. Not always, but most of the time you can assume that. And so every click you get away from the, the homepage, you know, the less the less link juice, I guess you would say, um, gets passed on to those other pages. And so if you're four or five, six, seven clicks in, you probably won't rank for anything unless you're the, you're the only page that's called that. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of orphan pages on people's sites or, I don't know, they're not linked on the nav anywhere, not, not linked off of anything. And so they may be, you know, very far into your website. And, and if you, if those are important pages to you, you should do what you can to, um, you know, get those pages more visibility. It, it's almost common sense, but, but some people just doesn't occur to some people, I guess. For sure. Yeah, no, I, I struggle with that too, because, you know, when it comes to, you know, structuring your work on your website i've always you know kind of gone back and forth in terms of what makes sense from a buyer's perspective like do i do it by color or subject or place and it's sometimes it makes sense to do all of the above so i I kind of have a hodgepodge of like i have galleries based on location i have galleries based on subject and i also have galleries based on um orientation of the photograph based on if someone's really just looking for vertical photos Here's some vertical photos, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, like yeah, that's actually how some of the galleries on my site came about. There, not everything I put in the site was um, intentionally put there just for SEO reasons. Like some of these galleries, like the color, I have a I have a gallery called Color Themes. It's because some people have asked, hey, like um, I'm looking for dark photos. I have a yellow room. I have this and all that. So that's the reason why I actually created a gallery like that. That, um, then the other day, I've been dealing with this other client that has a hallway and she wants to buy three acrylic prints, um, but she's looking for vertical photos um, instead of horizontal to fit her hallway. And I don't have a, I don't have a vertical gallery. So that's, um, yeah. and you do. So, so that's, you know, it, it fills a need. I probably and already I, sold prints to her, bro. It's too late. I know you did. <laughs> I know that that's why, that's why I'm working. That's why I'm working to build this next. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding but yeah. <laughs> You get the point. <laughs> totally. No, it's a fun thing to think about because you almost have to put yourselves in the sh- in the shoes of your customer, which I think any business should do that. Um, that's actually why I switched um, over to wide range galleries to begin with, is because I used to be on Zen or Zenfolio, okay, and it was a total disaster. I mean, you know, like so many clicks through to to buy something. I mean, by the time someone got to the process of actually buying it was like a four-hour process or whatever it was just ridiculous and i was like this is not working i have to find something that works better so you know that that's the general rule of of digital marketing i I don't know maybe you could apply this to marketing in general but you know every friction point you put in the transaction process from the minute they hear of you to the minute they decide to buy or not is one additional reason for them to bail on you Yep. And so if you want to be really efficient at selling stuff or, or anything in a business, you have to try to reduce or minimize the amount of friction points that, that somebody gets. It, it's, 
you know, short of um, doing one swipe and buy sort of stuff, it's almost impossible to have zero friction. But if you're aware of what they are, um, you should actively work to simplify those. And if um, it sounds like Zenfolio was on the opposite extreme of that. Yeah, they obviously didn't put any thought into it. Well, cool, man. So one other thing I wanted to talk about in regards to um, search engine optimization, which is something I think you also leveraged from your professional life is kind of analytics and kind of looking into your data um, about website visitors and also, you know, keyword analysis. I'm just curious, what are what's some tidbits of advice you can give to people in terms of doing some research about how their website is actually performing? So I guess if I were to give, if there are one takeaway from this entire podcast, anyone that has any sort of website and has any desire to sell or, or anything at all with their website online, you have to set up analytics on your website and you have to determine what your um, conversion goals are. And for when you're selling prints, you know, for example, it's more of a lead gen operation. Like um, lead generation, you know, for people that don't know what that is, it's it's essentially giving out your contact information, um, you know, to someone else. You know, you're filling out a form, I want to contact you, ask you for something, or I sign up for a newsletter or or however they give out their either their phone number or their address or email address. So that's the definition of lead generation. And if um, you haven't set up Google Analytics or any other analytics program to track um, how you get your leads, then literally you're flying, you're shooting blindly into the air and kind of guessing, you know, what brings traffic and business to you. And, you know, traffic doesn't necessarily equate to business either. Um, and so that's why if you have a good if you have a good grasp on analytics and have it set up properly, you should know um, what your most viable pages are. And value to me are the pages that bring in leads and or and or direct customers. Um, but especially if you're selling um, prints, which tend to be quite expensive, hardly anyone is buying this as an impulse buy. So when you're doing when you're marketing marketing a luxury service or product, you know, people need to. Um, you know, take time to research you and decide if they want to buy. And they may come back to your website 20, 30, 50 times right. over a certain period of time, maybe longer, maybe years even. Yep. I mean, so, but they're not going to remember you unless unless you stay in front of them, either through you know, Facebook, emails, um, retargeting, display ads, however. Um, and so that's that's why it's important to track all this analytics and know where these leads are coming from. And that, that's when you know, okay, I either need to tweak the experience on this page more if you think if you think it's an important page that should be bringing in more business or if it's a page that already brings in a lot of, a lot of potential customers and um, you just have to fight to protect it or not mess with it too much. Um, cool. Yeah. You'll be surprised to see like a lot of people that don't know where the leads come from and where the customers come from. They'll just delete the page or, or change the URL or, or whatever. You know, they're just kind of, you know, cast it aside, then they'll wonder six months later why they haven't sold anything. Oh man, I hope I don't make that mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let me tell you, every single business I've ever worked for and client I've ever worked for, they all have that problem. Hmm. Yeah, it's not just a photographer thing. It's just, it's a problem for everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so like, um, you know, if you work as an in-house SEO person or an agency SEO person, it's not just knowing the technical stuff, but you have to have business sense too and be able to... um get your ideas and analysis through to people. 
Like totally. There's a lot of stakeholders at these companies, and, and, and they have their own agendas. And so the really good ones are the ones that could uh, present a business case and, and get, the, get the work done. And, and that's, that's what separates somebody that could, uh, that's really good in this profession versus somebody that just knows it but, but is not really that great at getting their ideas through. Totally. Well, maybe, maybe this is a good uh, time to switch gears a little bit because I think what's related to this is something that um, I was really excited to talk to you about. And that's the fact that you have been publishing a blog for many, many years, right? And I'm guessing that your blog generates a fair amount of traffic for your website um, in terms of um, pulling people in and getting interested in who you are and what your photographs are. So I'm I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the types of things that you like to write about on your blog and what the value of blogging is in terms of your your overall business strategy. Yeah, so I started blogging I think in 2004 and and I think blog I think it was blogger.com at the time and that was the <laughs> right. only, Yeah, yeah, that was way back in the and that's probably where the name came from. So I actually started doing this because my um my grad school roommate at the time, um, Brandon Hill, I, I'll mention him later again, but um, he had suggested, hey man, like um, I like your work a lot, and you have a lot of interesting stories to tell. Why don't you share it with the with the internet? And so he suggested blogging. So I looked into it. Oh yeah, this is cool. So so probably for I don't know, I would say fourteen, fifteen years, I literally ran a travel blog. I you know, blogged about all of my shooting and travel and blah, blah, blah. It wasn't focused on any particular topic. There was even some marketing on there too. Um, but then then when I built this wide range site, I decided to actually scrap that. Um, I, I, kept the, I kept the articles that drove the most traffic. Then I kind of scrapped everything else because I wanted to focus on selling prints exclusively. Um, and so when I built this new site on Jack's platform, I um change the blog to focus ex- exclusively on um, on fine art prints. Yeah, that and, makes um, a lot of sense. Yeah, I, but, um, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I had a similar experience. Uh, my first website was a, it was a mountaineering slash mountain climbing blog where I was just basically writing trip reports uh, for the hikes that I would do and the pictures I took with my camera on my hikes. And, and then that's kind of how people got to know me and my photography over the years back in way back in like 2008, 2009, 2010. And then, um, you know, I, I was getting tons of traffic through that site and I was starting to realize kind of the power of just, you know, telling stories and sharing them on the internet and, and that pulls in a lot of traffic and, if there's a way to do that from more of an organic perspective, I think that's the that's the critical piece. It has to be like an authentic, you know, actual thing that you are excited to write about, not yeah. just how yeah. do I write a blog <laughs> post that's going to generate traffic? You're you're kind of doing it the wrong way, right? Yeah, uh, like like for me, like um, that's probably the only reason why anybody knows who I am is because of blogging. Like most of the photographers I, I'm friends with or know is because I either met them indirectly through blogging or or through um, promoting my blog on some social media site. That's, you know, that's, you know, the primary way I got my name out there for many years, at least in the, the photo industry. And ha- have you continued writing blog posts on your current site? Yeah. Yeah. I don't publish nearly as many now. They're more of a, more for, um, it's more for the buyers and the p- potential buyers I have on my site. Um, but yeah, I, I do write them um, selectively. I write them when they serve a business need now, as opposed to, to a travel blog. And um, I do I do keep a few of the older posts like like my most popular post at one point I was getting 
I don't know. I think at one point I got 30,000 page views a month, like on, on one of these, one of these posts. And like, um, and it's been my most popular post for over 10 years now. So like, um, yeah, so blogging can definitely, definitely bring in a lot of traffic for you for sure. Yeah. And the, and the, the trick to that is to have lots of interesting content that's well keyworded, um, and with good photos, I feel like, boom, you're going to generate traffic. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, you think about when we Google stuff, you know, like what are the pages we click on? It's the ones that actually sound interesting to read or that solve our problems or whatever. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, you know, it's a combination of having a compelling headline, but then if you have a meta description too, and that's the thing a lot of people kind of overlook, like um, they kind of ignore the text part of things. And if you don't have a compelling blurb to click on, then they'll just skip on to the next guy, even if you're ranked higher than somebody. Nice. Cool, man. Well, let's uh, let's talk about photography a little bit instead of websites. Um, yeah, sure. I know that you kind of you're born out of kind of the, the film era uh, to some degree, and I was curious if you could maybe talk a little bit about what your capture process is and your editing process. And I guess I'll follow it up with a question that may, might kind of guide okay. you. And okay. the the question is, uh, why do you prefer to capture in single exposures? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, I think it would be an interesting poll maybe to pull the people that listen to your podcast. Like, um, how many people do focus stacking? Like, a lot. I've never, I've never done a single focus stack, and I couldn't even tell you how to do it, Matt. Like, um, I don't know if I'm the only one that listens to this and has not done that, but I have never done a focus stack. I, I've done, I've done some blending when I need to. I feel like I could do it pretty well too, considering how how little I do it. Um, but when I do blend an image, I it looks basically the same as my single exposure stuff. Like I, I, um, the last time I gave, actually the last few times I've spoken to camera clubs, I've given them that test. Like I've told them, okay, some of these have, I've used graduate filters here. Some I've used nothing. Some are blended. Can you tell the difference? Not a single person could ever guess like um, which ones were which. And and that's basically my objective here. I want to keep a, um, I mean, for me personally, as an artist, I feel like it's a more organic process if I'm, you know, I'm trying to capture good exposures and just good photos out in the field. And I'll do what I need in the, in the, you know, Photoshop and Lightroom. But if I'm creating the entire photo in there, it just doesn't feel organic to me anymore. And so it's just not as satisfying to me as an artist. Um, But at the same time, since I did get started on film, you know, that's kind of the, not necessarily from a dynamic range standpoint, but I know what, what like a real exposure looks like. So that's kind of um, that's kind of why my photos look the way they do. It just looks like the way I would have done it on film for the most part. So it sounds like your your objective when you're in the field is to get it as right as possible in a single shot, and so that you so that it requires the least amount of editing afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I do like to process my stuff, but I don't like to spend hours and hours doing that either. Um, but for me. You know, it, there's just nothing that compares to shooting something really amazing on the field. Then you look at it on the on the LCD in the back, and you feel like you pull it off. Like there's no f- better feeling than f- feeling like you've actually nailed this thing in, in one frame. Like, yeah. like literally, sometimes I'll just you know I'll shoot something. I feel like I got it, then I see it, then I'll just go home like screaming the f bomb all the way back home in the car. Then yeah, I did it. I did it. <laughs> you know, that's right. Yeah, it feels good. You know, like there's nothing. You know, like. You know, sex doesn't even compare to that, to be honest. Like, oh, like your wife, your wife's not in the room, is she? Yeah, she's not. But like, you know, it, it's amazing. <laughs> you know, the, there's just an adrenaline rush that um I don't get from anything else. Like um, you know, it's just I don't know, it's just it's awesome. Like that's why I try to 
do it the way I do. The, of course, there's some situations where you can't um, you can't pull it off in a single frame. Then yeah, sure. then, then I'll, I'll resort to those other things. But that's more of a last resort sort of thing than a default sort of shooting strategy for me. Yeah, no, I mean, and I mean to your point, I it makes it so much easier if you have the the the, the light that works perfectly for a single shot and you can pull it off and you know that. You, I mean, my friend Kane and I say this all the time when we're out in the field. It's like, oh man, that's going to be so easy to process. It's going to be, oh, I love that, you know? Because it's yeah. like the, the worst thing. I mean, maybe it's just because we don't like processing, but it's just like, oh man, that's going to be so hard to process. <laughs> I don't like, I'm not looking forward to trying to trying to figure out how to blend in those crazy highlights or, you know, those shadows are really bad or whatever. So it's, um, yeah, if you can nail it, in the field and you see it on the back of your screen, it's like, yeah, that's going to look really good. I agree that that feeling, that feeling is, is pretty amazing. You know, that, that's the thing, you know, even the times I know that why I may have to blend something, I get a lot of anxiety actually after I shoot this, cause I actually never know until I can actually get to a computer, whether I, whether I actually pull it off or not, or whether I can. So I, I don't feel good about myself until I actually see the final product. Like, Oh man, I could have, spent all this time shot all this amazing stuff but then it's useless because i the frames are not good or just too hard to pull off so for me when i could do it in a single frame i just have a lot more confidence that i did it right or, or at least um i'll try to shoot a few frames like that then i'll shoot a few that i could potentially blend and pick the one that worked best right like just in case yeah yeah it's kind of insurance shots regardless of how i shoot it that makes a lot of sense yeah i mean I don't know. Ever since the A7R2 came out, I mean, I basically exposed to the right and on the histogram, and I'm, you know, I'm, it's almost never failed. Yeah, same here. Like, you know, once these Sony and Fuji and all these cameras came out with all these amazing sensors, like I find myself having to do a lot less Photoshop than I did at the past. You know, shooting with Canon for all those years, a lot of my older files, though, those those are the ones that maybe I would have benefited more from doing a lot more Photoshop, but I made it work. I almost all of my older shots are all single frame. Like, um, you, know, you just have to make do with what you have, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I, I assumed, I don't know. I, I feel like people that come from that time period, um, you know, where they're shooting raw files, but the raws are still not super malleable. It makes you a better photographer, right? Like you're able to nail a higher percentage of your shots. You're able to do, create some really great images without a ton of work afterwards. I think, you know, in some ways, I personally feel like it just makes you a better a better craftsman, you know? Yeah, like, you know, when I first started doing this, I was shooting a Fuji Velvia and Fuji Provia. And that's, there is, there's slim to, or no margin for error on those types of slide film. And so that's why, you know, I had to learn the basics and, and learn what a, what a quote unquote good photo looks like from a technical standpoint back in those days. And that's just, I guess, kind of our habit or just our personal philosophy. I've, I still follow that to this day. I just can't get around. It's hard for me to get around the idea that I, I should shoot a bunch of like shitty exposures and, and blend it all together to make a good photo. Like there's reasons why they would work and why I do it sometimes, but it's just hard for me to make that grasp. Like, um, whereas I think if you just came from a digital first background, you may have no qualms at all about shooting that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bracketing everything and, and have no good exposures and just put it all together in a computer. I just it's just kind of hard for me to wrap my head around shooting that way by default. Yeah, and uh, at the 
peril of my reputation, I was <laughs> I was curious if you had a personal opinion or felt strongly one way or another around kind of what we see being popularized in terms of um, images that are, you know, highly constructed in the digital darkroom in terms of, you know, cut and paste and, you know, all that kind of stuff. What do you, what, do you have a, any personal feelings around that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I like looking, you know, a lot of these fantasy schemes, I, I personally like looking at them from a aesthetic standpoint. Sure. But from a photographer and a, um, I guess from a photographer standpoint and just an overall um, storytelling standpoint, uh, yeah, it kind of drives me crazy too at the same time. Um, there are some people, you can't tell the difference in their work, whether it's completely constructed or whether it's relatively straight because they, they're they known for doing such fancy skits where you just can't tell the difference. And, and they're so good at it. Yeah, and they're really good. I feel that's kind of a shame too because, you know, they've kind of lost all believability too. Like, like I don't want to name names. Like, I like looking at their work, but I also don't sure. believe anything I see from them either. And, and right. that's kind of shameful. Like, um, it's kind of looking at it from an entertainment standpoint, but I don't get inspired at all because I don't know whether they actually saw that. So, mm-hmm. um you know, they, people that do whatever they want, I don't don't really have a problem with it. It's just, um, I don't know, it just doesn't do a lot for me emotionally, though. Yeah. I just don't believe it. Yeah, this, the, the piece you said about storytelling is what hits home for me. It's, um, you know, often you see those images accompanied with these great stories. and But when you read the story and you look at the image and you have knowledge as a photographer of how it was probably constructed, you're like, that. Those the story and the image are not lining up for me. And then, then there, for me, there's like this disconnect that happens. So. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how somebody reconciles with themselves. They'll, they'll tell a story about how they pulled off the shot, but then three of the photos would have come from like two years ago or, or from the next state over. So how do you reconcile telling a story and presenting you know, a foreground from here, then like icebergs from Iceland there, then you know, a sky that was from you know, Luminar AI? I, I don't know how somebody reconciles doing that. I, I mean, they're know, hoping no one notices, man, but you know. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's hard to prove unless you're the you're the only the person that didn't knows unless you're you're there with them or know the area really well. But I know people do lie for sure. Yeah, well, we don't have to spend a lot of time on that. I was just curious if you had a personal opinion on it. It's something that in all of our interactions on Twitter, we never actually really touched on. So I was curious. Yeah, yeah, I'm just not really big on calling people out. I'm you know non-confrontational, but I do have my own opinions. I, I like looking at the stuff, but I just don't believe it. So that that's. I guess that's the best way to um, to put it. You know, I don't have a problem with it, really. That's fair. Well, I wanted to pause for a moment to tell listeners about a unique and exclusive offer available only to you. I am offering one-on-one customized outdoor experiences where I help you discover and reconnect with nature through the lens. These adventures are only available a few times per year and they're booking fast, so reach out soon to reserve your own spot. Check out the show notes for more information. Okay, let's get back to our great chat with Richard. Well, so I know one of the other things that that I know about you is that you you do a lot of photography kind of close to home. You know, I guess two questions for me kind of come out of that style of shooting, I guess. First of all, what are the benefits for you in terms of shooting close to home? And what concerns do you have uh, for for long distance travel and that style of photography? Yeah, shooting close to home, you know, it gives you the opportunity to visit these places many times over and over again. 
but also to be selective too. Like you can pick and choose when to go at the best time. Um, whereas if you go to, if you travel somewhere, you know, unless you live out of an RV, there is a finite amount of time um, you have out in the field. So you're kind of at the whim of what's out there unless you want to drive absurd amount of distances just to chase a certain type of light. Um, and so that's why I like about, I mean, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and it's not hard to find stuff to shoot here. And, and as I would imagine in the Rockies where you live, um, some people, they may live out in Kansas or Nebraska, maybe a little bit more challenging, but there's, there's still stuff out there to shoot too. Sure. But wherever you live, like, you know, you could spend a lot of time there and be an expert in your own backyard, so to speak. And, um, and that's, that's where I learned a lot of my craft. Like I've spent a lot more time shooting within 50 miles of my home than I have 500 miles from my home or more. And so, you know, if, if I only shot when I went on vacation or traveled, I probably would only have like a fraction of the photos. I, I would, you know, probably wouldn't have, you know, gone as far as I have with my photography, I would say. Yeah. And I think the other <clears throat> cool thing about that is that you gain a personal relationship with those places and, and you know, like when things are going to look in a different way or an interesting way or a way that, you know, you're like, oh, I've really always wanted to shoot that scene in these conditions and that's going to happen tonight. So I, I guess I'm going to go shoot tonight. So I think there's a lot of advantages to that approach, um, especially when it comes to around creating personal meaning, personally meaningful uh, images. Yeah, like I, I have a wife and I have, I have two young kids and we'll go hiking places on the weekend or we'll go for a family trip. And, and most of the time I, I don't bring my camera if it's just a day trip with them. Um, but I always have my eyes open looking at potential opportunities. And sometimes I, I may miss good light, but most of the time is midday when I, when I wouldn't be shooting anyways. But then I'll keep a mental note. Okay, this is what it looks like. You know, if this were here, if it rained a little bit, if, if this were here, then you know, I, it'd be a great time to come back maybe three months from now. And so I, I keep a mental note of everything I see, everything I, everything I do, everywhere I go. And so, you know, maybe a couple of years before I pull something off or a few months later before I pull it off, or there, there may be some stuff I, I still think about that I still haven't done yet. But, um, you know, I think everywhere you go in your personal life is an opportunity to, um, you know, it's a scouting trip, essentially, whether you have a camera or not. Yeah. You know, speaking of, doing day hikes with your family and stuff. I mean, I have, I, I also, my, I'm married. I have a 13 year old son. So, you know, I typically don't bring my camera with me and we do like day trips like that. Same as you. Um, but what I will do is I'll have like Gaia GPS out on my phone and, you know, if we're hiking around and I see something that I'm like, Oh, that would be really interesting. Um, in these types of conditions, I'll create like a waypoint in Gaia. So, and oh, like, cool. you know, I'll label it like would look good in, snow or you know whatever and <laughs> yeah and then i've you know i've got that on my map so that i can know like if if you know weather's moving in or something and i have some free time i can go out i'll be like okay i remember i can go back to this spot and it'll be interesting to check out so i think that's a really great approach yeah that's you know i'm very low tech and i, I don't do any gps stuff but i think that's a really good idea because you know after 20 years of doing photography it's starting to um scare me scare me a bit when i look at my own work and i can't remember you know, where it's from or where i did that <laughs> and you know after after 10 years i think I, I retain most of it but i think after the 10 year mark i start forgetting stuff oh and man so, you know if you That's don't take notes or, i know if you don't take notes or do gps like you um you know you could lose all that stuff over time so i you know any you know some people do journal entries some people like gps and so I think anytime you could do note taking, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, no, I think that's 
it's a it's a it's a really good idea. Cool. So, I mean, perfect segue. I was really curious. You know, you you're relatively prolific in your shooting, and I'm curious, how do you balance photography and your family life? Like, what are your approaches to keeping that? keeping it going without driving your family crazy or without sacrificing your ability to get good photos? Yeah, I, I would just straight out say this. I personally do not think full-time landscape photography and having a family life is compatible. There you go. Yeah, if um, just my opinion, if, if I were to live the lifestyle of some of these um, people that travel all the time, I would probably be divorced. And <laughs> I don't want that. Like, um, Because, you know, my wife is very understanding in the context of, you know, she works a job too, and, and we have a, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And like, um, if I were always on the road and doing workshops all the time, that wouldn't work. Like, it's uh, it's not fair to her, and it, it just wouldn't work. And so, you know, I don't lead any workshops, nor do I market any, because it, it's not, not compatible with my lifestyle. Um, and so, I don't know how some of these other people manage to pull it off, or maybe they don't. But, um, you know, for me anyways, I just find that that sort of, career path and lifestyle is not compatible with with my family life anyways um but but for me you know i do most of my shooting at sunrise these days um you know we'll go on a on a family trip or even a three-day trip two-week trip whatever i'll wake up literally every day you know hour or two before sunrise or or even earlier just to to hang out or hike somewhere and and go set up and go shoot and i'll be back mid-morning sometime then they're just getting out of bed and ready to go have breakfast then everyone's happy you know i've got my photos then if, you know, some days if things are really good and timing's right, then maybe they'll retreat to the room and then I could shoot a sunset too. And so that that's basically how I balance that. Um, then occasionally if I need to, to shoot stuff, um, my wife will let me just go on my own too. Um, I travel sometimes on my own or she'll let me out on a, on a day shoot just to go shoot stuff too if I need to. That's cool. Yeah, that sounds very similar to kind of my approach, especially when you're doing trips with your family you know, getting up early, going for a little short hike or walk and shooting sunrise. I've done that so many times. I remember I did a trip to Kauai um, way back in 20. Well, I've done two trips to Kauai in the last 15 years. And I remember both times I would do that a couple of, couple of the mornings, you know, if I wasn't too hungover, <laughs> you know, get up and, yeah. you know, hike out to the beach and make some, make some images. And I think that's a really great way to balance it though. You know, you, you find yourself in some beautiful places, you're on vacation with your family and, you know, it doesn't have to be all about photography, um, but you can also get some photography in while you're there. So I yeah, think- you know, that's the thing, like, you know, you can't have the, at least from my standpoint, you can't have the camera out all day long when it's family time. I, I think you have to separate the two. I mean, so when you're doing your sunrise thing, that's 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 my time. Or if I'm doing night photos or sunset, you know, that's my time. Um, but then the rest of the day, I'll I'll be with the family and pay attention to them all day long. And so, you know, you know, I may go to a playground in, in Monterey with my kids or they'll go beachcombing for the day. And so, you know, it's a fun family trip, but then I, I get my photos too on my own time. I, I think it becomes more of a tension point and a problem if you're shooting photos all day long and trying to bring them along for the ride. I don't think that works too much. Right. Well, I don't know about your wife, but if I did that, you would definitely hear about it at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was when I first met my wife, she couldn't understand my lifestyle and why I shot photos so much. And so I've adapted to that a little bit, but um, but she's also understood that I do need my own time to do that. So sure. So um, I don't think we really have. It's been quite some time since we've had any disagreements about um my photography. Probably been several years since um, we've had any sort of problems with that. 
Totally. Thanks for thanks for covering that. I appreciate that. And I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one that, you know, is able to balance it, but also not feel bad about it. You know? It's yeah. Like, yeah, it's, okay. yeah. Family first. You just have to, um, you know, determine what your priorities are in life. And, and quite honestly, photography is not number one anymore. It's probably one B or, or two, I guess, on some days. So like, um, sure. It's just how it is. Absolutely. That's, no big deal. A, yeah. I mean, let's be honest. It's not like you're missing out on anything because of that i don't think yeah yeah if you're spending quality family time that's great it's it's um you know shooting photos and shooting amazing sunsets is really rewarding and fun but it's also short-lived too like you, you have to go home to something and um right for me i, I like going home to to a family it's, it's uh more rewarding in my opinion well said all right man well let's uh let's let's talk a little bit about a topic that i know that um is near and dear to your heart with some recent interactions that I've been privy to. One of the things I think we've both noticed is, um, and I and I personally can say that I'm guilty of myself over time. I'm trying to be better at it um, over the last couple of years. But, um, you know, there's a lot of negativity on social media. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. You know, we're humans and we're competitive and we have fragile egos and you know there's all kinds of reasons why negativity occurs on social media but um i'm curious from from your perspective you know why do you think people are negative on social media and why is that unhealthy i I know i I feel like some of it maybe it's a little bit of jealousy sometimes um somebody may be having a bad day maybe a bad life i don't know there's all sorts of reasons why i mean who knows you know you know maybe life you know Things are not going the direction they want, maybe for some people. So, like, um, sure. there's all sorts of reasons why people like lash out and stuff. Like, um, I'll admit that I, I like to go online sometimes. And I'll rant sometimes on Twitter or some other channel, but it's never directed at a single person. But like, um, the stuff that bothers me is are the people that get into like personal attacks and attack you know people specifically. That that's just not cool. It's not it's not nice and it's kind of uncalled for. And like, um, you know. I use social media because I like to promote my work, but I, I I do enjoy it sometimes too. But when my feed is occupied with too much, you know, negativity or too much personal attacks, like you know, I have to um you know distance myself from that because it just um, makes me unhappy. Like it's um it's not why I go there for. And it's just you know I've got other stuff going in my life. I don't need more stress by um by somebody on the internet you know talking crap about me or someone else. Like it's not always necessarily about me either. If I just don't like people talking crap about other people in general, like that often, like, um, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just not that fun. Like, um, or, or politics. I mean, like I'm self-admittedly very liberal and, you know, most of my friends on Facebook are pretty liberal and there's a few of them that are just constantly like not since the election, but before the election, you know, every other post was, you know, anti-Trump and like, you know, just super biased (laughs) and like, at some point you're just like, okay, like I agree with you, but can we tone it down a little bit? Maybe you're you're not helping. Yeah. It doesn't help. Like, um, you know, somebody like, you know, you know, I'm very personally anti-Trump myself. Um, sure. But I may not be as liberal as you, but I'm very much anti-Trump. But at the same time, like, you know, hearing about politics all the time, even with people I agree, is tiring. Like, it's yeah, exhausting. it's like okay, I I get it. I agree with I you. Mean, right? What are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. I don't like talking about politics that much. Honestly, you like that. Like, um, you know, we all have our own beliefs, and 
you know, maybe some people do like talking about politics, but I think also you have to understand your audience too. Like if you call yourself a photographer or even market yourself as one, you have to be mindful of who your audience is. Like you're not, I, I, I don't know, you're not Megan McCain or, or who not, you know, some other insert political commentator on, on, um, on TV or the internet. Like you're not them and you're not calling yourself them. So right. you just have to be aware of what your personal reputation is, but also why people follow you. Like if, um, you're Matt Payne. I'm Richard Wong. Like, um, we don't call ourselves political commentators. So, political yeah, analyst. Yeah, analyst, or I don't know what you call those terms. But yeah, we're not calling ourselves that. So, you know, beyond the occasional mention of that or, or calling out a few things here and there, if literally half of your content out there is about that, then you're, you know, you're no longer um, serving your audience. Like, you know, maybe it's time to update that bio or um, get into a new line of work. That's uh, that, that's just my opinion. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I personally enjoy like engaging in thoughtful discussion and debate. And I always, whenever I do posts like that, it's always in the, in the spirit of, of healthy conversation. And whenever it gets derailed and goes sideways, I try to redirect it or delete those comments. But yeah, you know, there are some people that all they do is like reshare memes and, and, you know, like say nasty things. And you're just like, okay, man, like, I'm following you because you're a photographer, not be, you know, not because we agree on political views. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're. I think yeah. There's somebody out there. You probably know who that is too. I, I'm not going to mention his name, but he's pretty well known in this industry too. And I, I was pretty good friends with him for a, you know over a decade. And um, you know, we had a falling out on Twitter not too long ago because uh, yeah, I just didn't like the some of the vitriol he was putting out there and he's been doing it for quite some time, but some of it started to get um, a little too personal attacking or, or just referencing some people. I just didn't care for him to start, you know, going down that path. And like, um, and so, you know, just kind of devolved into, you know, getting into my DM box and it just kind of derailed from there. So I just, you know, had to cut myself off from that person, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, you know, I don't feel good about that, but at the same time, I've seen a, pattern of behavior from that person um not the first time i've seen that sort of behavior either and i've heard from other people as well and i just um you know just had to get away from that you know maybe someday we get a reconnect but you know just um i don't know like you know twitter is probably not the place for him i mean i've gone along with him personally i mean really really great you know everywhere else is just you can't just go into my box and start personally attacking me like that and expect me to be cool with you or be friends with you the next day. It's just, um, sure. yeah, just, you know, given how everything's, how everything is these days with COVID and all these other problems that I don't need like one more headache in my life. Here. It's just, right. Yeah. You know, just, just easier to, to cut that person off than um, do that than add more stress to my life. Yeah. And I think Sorry. my, my approach to that is, um, you know, instead of complaining about the things you don't like, like, praise the you know talk about the things that you do like and you get excited about and 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 try to distance yourself from from the negativity as much as you can i mean we're only human so i know i i've personally fallen prey to some of that stuff myself over the years and yeah you know i try to do try to you just try to become a better person but uh at the end of the day you have to exercise some (laughs) self-control yeah that's the thing like you know you don't have to be like the smiley happy all the time type of person but I think, you know, just having good interpersonal skills, like if you're always negative complaining or yelling or attacking things, that's not the way to um, build relationships. Like um, you could bond over maybe a common argument, but at the same time, you're not going to form like a particularly deep relationship with that person. And like, um, 
it only goes so far. Like you can't be angry like every second every day. Like um, just have to balance it out with just you know, just being a regular normal person, I guess. You know, it's interesting. I read a study recently that um, talked about the use of different types of words in social media posts. And, you know, you, you if you follow any of those like political commentary people or even like Petapixel, you know, pe- you know, pages that are trying to get your attention. Yeah. Uh, they've kind of figured it out. And what they've noticed, what they've figured out is um, if you use like really triggering language, that's like very accusatory and like, <laughs> how dare they? Or, you know, these like, you know, just very kind of accu, 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 what is the word I'm looking for? Accusatory? I guess. Accusatory language. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah, some You are, yeah. Accusatory language. That it gets like three times as much engagement oh, interesting. on social media, which is like, no, why do we do this to ourselves? You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's, you know, if you're the publisher of, of is it Petapixel or a Peta? Right, I don't know how right. I don't know how to pronounce it, but um you know, if that person doesn't have their name on the website, if I'm Richard Wong Photography, I am personally not comfortable writing that way because my name is attached to it. If um, I didn't have a byline there or have my name attached to the website, I would probably be fine saying out or all sorts of outrageous stuff too, um, just for attention and, and not feel bad at all about it. So I think um, I think it's just easier when you hide behind a name like that, kind of anonymously, anonymously and just you know put out outrageous headlines like that. Yeah, I think the what I'm trying to get at is is that it serves a purpose for those people. Like it it garners attention and fills them with something that they were missing. Not to say that it, you know, it's positive, but it's serving a purpose. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, that part I have a hard time doing myself. I just, um, I know it just doesn't feel authentic to me personally, but yeah, some people do that very well. Yeah. Yeah, man. All right, well, somewhat related to this and um one of the things i was really excited to talk to you about i don't know if excited is the right word but i i really think this is could be a really engaging conversation i mean it's something you and i have um chatted a lot on twitter about and i know it's uh, relatively controversial so that's always fun right yes, yes. so <laughs> so um i guess i'm going to start with just a simple question um, do you feel like there's a lack of diversity in landscape photography? Oh man, like um, yeah, landscape, outdoor, all of those related genres. Like um, you hear a lot of talk on the internet these days how there's not a lot of females, or, or tra- traditionally not a lot, and especially in the professional side of things, um, they're only now recently getting more attention. Well, I think one area that's has flown under the radar is there's this. Uh, there's just a lack of non-white people, for lack of a better word, in outdoor photography. I'm quite honestly, I'm probably one of the few um, Asian American photographers out there in this business that even tries to market myself. Um, there's a few others out there, but you know, there's not very many. And right. and anytime you look at some of these conferences or or magazines and publications, like you look through all of them, you, I guarantee you, you will not find a single Asian person. You won't find an African American or a black person there. You won't find any any sort of Latinos. There. It's just um, it's it's all white people. You know, there's a lot of mostly middle aged men. There's some women here and there, but there's literally no color at all. Like um, in the business at large, like um. And the few there are, it's just kind of an outlier. It's not, it's not that common. And it's kind of a paradox, right? It's like, uh, what came first, the the chicken or the egg, kind of a thing. It's like, is it, yeah. is there not a lot of people of, of color in this business because they're not interested in it, um, or is it because 
uh, we're not doing a very good job of promoting the people that actually are in it or, or is it, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to know, like what is actually causing this issue? Yeah, I would say it's a little bit of both because, you know, if all these institutions, they only promote white people, for instance, they're going to have a lot easier time getting their na- name out there, whether it's algorithmically or just having a built-in following. Whereas somebody that, you know, like myself, like I'm literally starved from nothing and have no no industry support. You're just kind of out there on your own trying to, you know, build your own thing. And it, it's a lot harder. Like, um, you know, it's not an excuse. It, it's just a fact. Like, you know, it's, you know, if Canon's promoting your name where you're probably going to pick up like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers um, by doing nothing other than just putting your face on something. Right. Um, yeah. It's, it's just, this is how it works. Like, um, and so I don't have an answer for it. Like um, I just think, you know, I would like to believe that most of these, you know, companies and publications don't deliberately um, discriminate, but they may never look and even cross their mind. Oh, I have no diversity. It's it just not something that you know they've thought of because they've never had to deal with those things in life. Like, um, you know, they've never had to deal with the glass ceiling at work. They've never um, been called like racist names or, you know, not been served at a restaurant you know, or, you know, spat on or, you know, assaulted or told to go back to the country. You know, that's a common one, you know, that Asian Americans hear all the time. And like, um, you know, if you don't have to deal with those things in life, then, um, you know, it's easy to forget or not even think about it because you've never had those difficulties in life. Yeah. And it's a tough egg to crack too, because um, as you know, I'm partnering with three other photographers and we've created a landscape photography competition around, you know, it's called the natural landscape photo awards. And, you know, it's, um, it's, it's hard because when we sat down and um, sketched out what our criteria was for our judging panel, we had listed out um, all of these things that we needed to to be true in order for someone to be a judge for us. You know, we needed someone who agreed with the ethos of the competition. So that eliminated like 60% of people <laughs> yeah. in general, right? Yeah. Um, we needed people that had a relatively um, decent way to attract or promote the competition, whether that's through their mailing list or through their reputation or through social media or whatever, right? So that eliminates a whole bunch of people. And then we needed it to kind of be a represent, representative of kind of highly respected people in the industry that that would that people would be excited to judge their images. And then lastly, we, we needed people that had like a really strong portfolio of, of, of photographs. And and the challenge we had is when you look at when you when you stack up all of those criteria. I mean, we, we actually tried, we, we were like, okay, let's list out all of the women that would meet this, these criteria. Let's list out all of the non-white people that meet all four of these criteria. And like, when you're done, you're like, okay, there's no one on the list. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I get it. (laughs) You know? So like, but then it becomes a self-perpetuating problem because those people aren't given the opportunities. So it's like, it's it's a really, I see it from both angles, and it's really it's a really hard thing to tackle. Yeah, I think you know, with anything in life, I think um, you know, if you were back in the civil rights era, there was a first for everything. You know, there's you know, there's a first for everything, and you know, I think the public or the companies and all those things, or the businesses, or even uh, you know, famous figures that made a name for themselves, they've done it because they were the first to do it. Like you know, they're willing to go against the grain and do something different, and so I feel like. 
know, in order to get more diversity, I feel like if there is a company out there that wants to take that on and actually deliberately, um, you know, I guess, be more inclusive, I guess, and, and bring in minorities, they can do that, you know, and not just focus purely on sales. Oh, they don't have a million followers. You know, if that's your only criteria, yeah, you're going to be stuck with the same pool of people that right. you know, have, you know, come before. Sure. Um, but the problem is, you know, there's there's lots and lots of talented photographers. You could probably go on social media or Google and probably find, you know, a number of, of non-white, you know, very talented photographers out there. You know, they may not be as famous as somebody that has, you know, a million followers, but, you know, they're every bit as good of a photographer and probably have valuable things to say. So I think, you know, I think the companies that are more or organizations that are more conscious of that, yeah, they could. I think they could certainly, you know, come up with discover their own photographers and, and some of them may not be white like it's certainly possible to do that i just think um you gotta start somewhere right and then the, and then the i think that's great but then the, you also have like the flip side where you have people say well, like oh you only invited that person because they're a token like it's token yeah it's like you can't win it's like <laughs> yeah that that's yeah that that's the hard part you know i i've yeah, I've worked in the I worked in the travel business for like a decade now, and like that's the thing in in the you know in the luxury market, or luxury travel business, like all of the the guests that take these trips are all white too. Um, and so from a marketing standpoint, it's almost impossible. Like you know, like like you've said here, to you know to market, um, I guess to be more inclusive in your marketing without getting called out for it. Like it's um right. I don't have a good answer for that. You know, I I'm. Asian myself, I don't have a good answer for it. Like, I don't know, just, I don't have a solution for how to fix these problems. I, I just know that it is a problem. I just don't know what to do about it. I mean, it's pretty wild that, you know, less than a hundred years ago, we had Martin Luther King making that, I have a dream speech. So, I mean, I think part of it, it's like, we haven't lived in a reality long enough to where this isn't a thing anymore, you know? Yeah. I think anybody that would tell you like not just to, not to get into politics, but I think you know even if you support affirmative action or not, you know in an ideal world, yeah, you wouldn't have to create laws like that or, or do those sorts of policies. It, like I think every single minority would wish that everybody can be judged on an equal playing field. But the, if you're not starting on an equal playing field, you're at right. a severe disadvantage. Like you know, I've I've read some. I don't know if it's true or not, but I've read studies like or from that people share anyways, you know, it's a lot harder, say, if your parents have to work two or three jobs to make ends meet. And that's that's sometimes why some students in certain ethnic groups don't perform as well in school, because their parents are never around to um, help support them um, from an educational standpoint. Oh, um, absolutely. I mean, yeah, or they themselves may not be that educated. So it's a lot harder than than if you have a college educated parent where it's, you know, you have a built in support system. So, you know, you just have to work twice as hard, I guess, or three times as hard as somebody that has, you know, more built in advantages. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying at all, it's not a bad thing at all. Do you have, you know, a family that can help you? And that's great. We all wish we could have that. Uh, but there's a lot of people out in this world, whether we want to acknowledge or not, that don't have those advantages or or I guess you would say it's a disadvantage for them. Like it's um it's not an excuse. It's just the reality. They it's hard. I can see why people end up where they are. Yeah, no, I don't know if you've ever seen this exercise done before, but I've I've done it a few times as a facilitator. And essentially what you do, like you know, you do it in like leadership forums or things of that nature, or maybe like a college class or something. But what you do is you go outside and you go like on a football field or something, and then you basically just have a list of questions that you ask everyone. And then you say something like, um, 
you know, take five steps forward if both your parents are married when you're growing up and take five steps forward if you're white and take five steps forward if you're a man and take five steps forward if, if um, your parents ever could take a vacation with you. And, and like you just do all these questions and it just goes to show you like all of the different privilege that people have. And it, it's a it's a really interesting visual thing. You get to see how the playing field is not really even right. Like even as a white, you know, I, I grew up in relative poverty, but I'm also a white man. So like compared to my people, uh, my friends in, or people of color or their women of color who live, grew up in poverty, I have some other advantages that they don't. And, you know, that's to not recognize that fact would be crazy to me. But I think that's a really great exercise to kind of demonstrate what you're talking about. Yeah. Like, um, you know, even being an Asian here, I mean, you know, you know, I feel like we've, we flied under the radar for a very long time. Like, you know, nobody pays attention to us until recently, but, you know, even being an Asian, you know, so, there's some places that I will refuse to go or um, get nervous or have anxiety to go based on how I might think I may be treated um, based on past experience. And so in a few weeks, um, my family and I are going to the Oregon coast and like, um, I've actually been quite, it's given me some anxiety given all the news that's been happening about all the hate crimes um, that's been happening to Asians, um, not not just the shootings, but just hate crimes in general. And like, I've gotten a lot of anxiety about this trip because I, I don't know how I'm going to be received in some of these smaller towns. Like, when I was growing up, I remember like, um, you know, people saying racist stuff to my parents, uh, making sounds or pretending like they had an accent, which they didn't, and all those things. And like, um, I've heard everything about it. And like, you know, it brings me back to that time and thinking, oh man. We made so much progress since the 80s you know, in that, but then we kind of fell back to that or worse in the past you know, few years. And um, it gives me a lot of anxiety traveling there potentially and not um, you know, traveling outside of the Bay Area where it's less diverse. I don't know how people are going to treat me. Are they going to call me coronavirus? I don't know. Like, um, they could, and I, and I won't like that. So like, um, it's just hope it doesn't come down to that. It's just... Um, you know, that's the type of stuff that, um, you know, if you're not a white person, you have to deal with this stuff. And like, it's just, it's just not very fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, you know, going through this as a photographer over the years, um, I'm curious how else it's impacted your creative process or your business or even your engagement in the art form. It sounds like it <clears throat> has significantly impacted your ability to travel without anxiety. I would compare that to like me, going into like central Compton yeah, <laughs> every yeah. day, you know, but you know, that would be my, my nightmare scenario as a stupid white guy. Uh, <laughs> how, how else has it affected you? I mean, for, for me, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to blame anything professionally on that um, at all. I, I won't use that as an excuse for anything, Sure, but just from a personal standpoint, yeah, I do get anxiety about, um, going to some places and um, and there's some places I haven't been you know strictly to the fact that I don't know how, how I'll be treated or if I'll even be safe if I go there um, based on the way I look um, and so yeah, I would say that's just that's probably that's probably how it's impacted me the most just from a from a mental health and a psychological standpoint more than anything mm. yeah. I'm sorry you have to experience that yeah it's um it's one of those things you know I going to school public school growing up you know dealt with that every single day back then um fortunately in my adult life not as much um but you know some of it but not as much um it's just one of those things that you just have to deal with but it's just not a fun thing and 
especially when you see you know it going backwards like it is these days or it seems like it's going these days that's just uh, it's just not a good feeling yeah 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 i saw this there was a story in san francisco i think like a week or two ago where a 75 year old asian grandmother was punched in the head on the street and spat on and told to go back to her country um and so a lot of these people that have been assaulted like that have either died or gone to the hospital but this woman she got pissed. She took her cane or, or whatever stick she had with it and beat the shit out of the guy. Like um, and the and the crowd loved it. And like um, they arrested him, and she still wanted to tackle more um, when he was on the gurney being wheeled away. So she beat the crap out of this this thirty year old guy, you know, you know, a lot bigger than her and and le- you know, less than half her age, and and uh, sent him to the hospital. You know, she got injured herself, but uh, she defended herself quite well. Um, but it's sad. Like um, you shouldn't. Nobody should ever have to deal with that sort of stuff. No, for no, no reason at all. No, it's ridiculous. We're, we're all just humans trying to get through life. Yeah, like, yeah, I had nothing to do with, with COVID-19. Like, I've never even been to China before. You know, I'm, you know, I'm every bit as American as you. Like, you know, I have nothing to do with it. So why are you calling people coronavirus? Like, ridiculous. Like, like you know, that sort of stuff pissing me off. Like, um, yeah, it pisses me <laughs> off too, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what else I could say about without, without um, you know, getting extremely angry about it. But like, um, I mean, what, 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 what can we do about it? I mean, what are, what are, the, what can we do as your, 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 white friends who haven't experienced that life like what what are things that we can do to to make it better to support you or to help fix it anyway i think just try to put your yourself in somebody else's shoes for a minute like it's not always about you know i think some people have a hard time looking at things from a from anyone else's standpoint other than their own and and it's kind of selfish and like um Mm -hmm. and like you know i you know i you know i was born here you know like why should I be treated like that or, or anyone else for that matter be treated like that just to, based on what they look like? like? Who cares? Like, you know, you have brown hair, or I have black hair. Someone else has blonde hair or gray hair. Like, we're all born, we're human, we all die. Like, we're all the same. So um, I just think, you know, just there's a lot of ignorance out there. You just have to, um, you know, just, I don't know, get more, I don't know, find more friends, I guess, or communicate with people that are different from yourself. I think there's a lot of people out there that have been sheltered and never probably never met an Asian or been friends with one before. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, you know, I think, you know, if you were to talk to some, you may actually find some you connect with and like, um, you know, maybe you could change your, your attitude on life or the way you, you look at people like that. Um, yeah. I just think, um, you know, I guess the reason why I bring it up here, you know, maybe the only thing I could do really is just bring that up, you know, to this podcast. I, you have a pretty significant following. Maybe some people, you know, maybe some people you listen here have actually done some of the things I've I've talked about here. Like, um, just don't like cut it out. Like, um, you know, there's real people out there that are impacted by this stuff. is is not fun. Like, it's not fun for me, and it, it's certainly not fun for that that 75 year old woman that got punched in the head. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It seems pretty simple to me. Just don't punch people. Don't insult people. Don't call people names. You know. Yeah. Like, cut it out. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you have a reason to fight somebody, if, if they provoked you somehow or if, or you're doing a good natured fun, but if it's one sided, it's not fun for the person, you know, on the receiving end of it. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your personal experiences and that I I um I know that that can be difficult and and hopefully even if just one person listening changes the way they think about that, I think we've we've had a success. Yeah, yeah, like um, let me tell you like the day after this uh, the Atlanta spa shootings, my my friend, he lives in Austin, Texas. He's a white guy. Um He's married to a Japanese woman. He, he texted me to see how I was doing. He told me that his wife is not going to leave the house for, for a while. 
and he's just going to go out for them because he's concerned about um, his wife and his, uh, his daughter's safety. Yeah, so 2021, and that's yeah, the kind of stuff we yeah, have to deal with. Yeah, yeah, it's so it's just um, yeah, it, it impacts everyone. Like um, yeah, it's just uh, not a good time, I guess. Yeah, voting matters. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> Who would have thought? Ugh. Yeah, yeah. I'll just say this. You know, you can vote whatever party you want and whoever you want, but I think you know character matters too. Like um, it's not always about policy and you know you know some philosophical discussions like that i think character matters too like if you're yes. voting for a white supremacist like you know i think there's something wrong with you and <laughs> I, i'll just put that out there i think there's something wrong with you just saying yeah <laughs> i don't disagree <laughs> but i don't think that surprises you or anyone else listening. no 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 yeah it's yeah I, yeah i guess um enough politics for me but yeah I, and, and tell you true that yeah character matters you know i I'll admit I voted for Joe Biden not because I love him, but just for the fact he's not Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. yeah that's you know I, I can't vote for a racist that's you know potentially putting my life in danger. It's just not cool. Right. Well, cool, man. Well, let's talk a little bit more about photography. So. Sure thing. <laughs> so I I always ask everyone on the show who they would recommend our listeners check out, and who would be interesting to hear from here on the podcast. Yeah, I have five different photographers, and um, none of which have been on your show, and they're all quite different. I think they would add a lot, lot of um, value to your show. So the first photographer is Ron Niebrugge. He is a um, Alaska nature and wildlife photographer um, based out of Seward. And, oh, cool. uh, and yeah, and he, um, yeah, this guy's house. He lives right on the waterfront there, and so he could open the front door and shoot these amazing snow-capped mountains and have Resurrection <laughs> Bay outside his front door. Oh, that like, sounds um, terrible. Yeah, yeah, he has like the most amazing location. <laughs> but um, yeah, he's a great guy. Like, like I've known Ron for probably about fifteen years now. I actually went on his first uh, grizzly bear workshop probably about ten years ago. Nice. But, uh, he's a great guy, and, and he, he could tell you all about um, how to successful how he successfully um, or successfully transitioned from primarily stock and assignment photography into um, teaching workshops and and leading tours. Nice. Okay. Yeah, so him and his wife Janine, they, they run the business. Uh, she she's not a photographer; she mostly runs the business side of things, whereas he, um, you know, he does the photography. Very cool. Yeah, another one is a uh, QT Leong. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. He um, he's known well. He's known for a lot of things, but he's mostly famous for his national park photography. He he created this amazing, I guess, a uh, magnum opus. I guess you would say of. Uh, encyclopedia of a national parks book several years ago about three or four or five hundred pages of every single national park with dozens of photos and and lots of great texts like yeah, um, tre- treasured lands yeah treasured lands yeah this is the most amazing national parks book ever made and one of the best landscape photography books that i have personally ever seen and uh, and he's a very smart guy too and so i think he would be an amazing guy to have on the show he, yeah, he's been correct. in the business for a long time and and he uh, i think he would have a very interesting perspective and he sh- he shoots like medium or large format right yeah i'm not yeah i'm not sure i think five by seven i think that's large format i'm not sure um yeah i think that's his thing yeah i think he shot all of these parks on on that same type of film starting back in the 90s all the way till now that's so cool. Like, um, yeah, his his body of work is pretty insane, and um, he's a, a very smart man too. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so my next photographer on my list here is Aaron Chang. 
Okay. He um he's a he was a legendary longtime staff photographer for I believe Surfing Magazine, oh. and so he was very influential in, in the surf photography space and pioneered a, lo- a lot of those techniques. And um, but he uh, I, I believe he probably retired from the editorial industry and he um opened some galleries in in um, San Diego area and also Carmel. Oh and, yeah. And I've been, yeah yeah I've been to his Carmel gallery and it, it, he has really huge and gigantic prints there. So I think um. It'd be really cool to hear from somebody like that who, um, you know, not quite in landscape photography, but in a an outdoor adventure and how they've transitioned from that career path into um, being what seems like a successful gallery business. Yeah, we use the same lab and um, we have the same sales manager. And every time I call him and talk to him, he's like, oh, yeah, Aaron, Aaron Chang and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, totally. Now I'm now it's ringing a bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've talked to that same the same sales manager and that's uh yeah, I'd, I'd actually seen Aaron's work before he mentioned that. So yeah, yeah, I've seen his stuff. Cool. Yeah, you guys do great work. Nice. Um, yeah, the next person on my list is Brandon Hill. He is a Seattle-based um, commercial photographer. He was my roommate in grad school. Um, at the time, he was a he was a graphic designer at the time. And um, but but you know, somewhere along the way, he picked up photography. He's actually a very successful commercial photographer now. He's photographed Bill Gates. Um, Bill Nye, science guy. He shoots for Facebook, shoots for Nintendo, and all sorts of stuff. And like, um, he's like he's like a super cool, really nice guy. But um, but he um, oh, he's super creative, and somehow he's made it work. And like, I think you know, it would be great to have him on the podcast. I, I've known him for twenty years. I, th- I think he's a fantastic guy. Awesome. Um, and the last person I have on my list is Andrew Prokos. Um, he's a New York City based um, fine art architecture and a uh, landscape photographer. And, um, you know, he's somebody that seems like he does very well um, um, selling fine art prints online and, um, and very large prints of uh, urban architecture. So I'd, I'd like to learn more about his background and, and see, um, you know, how he's you know, made a successful career career out of this for himself. Nice, man. Well, cool. So lastly, you know, can you tell listeners a little bit about how they can learn more about you? And I know you have two different websites and, you know, if anything, other photographers can learn about you know piecing together what some of the things we've been talking about and seeing it for their own eyes okay my my main photography website is rwongphoto.com i mean that's where i keep most of my photography i've i've this is my first website i've had this website dating back to 2004 i mean so but i recently uh rebuilt that site two years ago on on, um, jack brower's platform wide range galleries and and that's um you know that's where i most of my work these days. Um, then my second website is fineartphotographyprints.com. And um, that website was actually cre- created as a, a proof of concept for this current um, uh, Wide Range Galleries website of mine. So um, I initially created as a proof of concept, but then um, I kind of kept it up and I've added some content to it since. It seemed like um, you know it's attracted some, I've built some web traffic to it. So I, you know, I've gotten some, some of my best customers have actually come from that website too. And so I've, I've kept it up. And so that's why I have two websites right now. Uh, interesting approach. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, man. Well, hey, this has been amazing. And, you know, thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot to me. And, and I think, People listening will have probably learned a lot from this conversation. So thanks for for your honesty and your time. Yeah, thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to listen to your podcast too. It's just um, I find it really entertaining. But I think your interviewing style is really great in that you get you're able to draw the personality out of your your guest. Um, and it doesn't sound contrived at all. 
And I feel like people are just a lot more honest on your show. And, um, and I feel like I, the, the listener gets a lot more value um, compared to some of these other podcasts. Cool. Well, thanks again to Richard for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate you, your work, and your support of the show on Patreon. I encourage everyone to go check out his websites by looking for the links in the show notes. Speaking of Patreon, I want to take a moment to thank an upcoming guest, Carolyn Chang, for supporting the podcast over on Patreon. If you too value these conversations and want to keep what I'm doing for years to come, I would be grateful if you supported me there. I've established several levels of support, beginning at just $5 per month. If I could just get a small percentage of listeners to help out, it would make my life oh so much easier. I was recently asked how much time and effort go into keeping the podcast running week in and week out, and I've estimated that it takes roughly 10 to 20 hours of work per week to pull this off. But I also have to factor in the opportunity costs associated with producing the podcast every single week without fail. I pass on a lot of photography trips and opportunities in order to ensure that the podcast keeps going. Can you help out? I'd really appreciate it if you do. Thanks in advance. All right, well, let's talk about what's coming up on the podcast. Next up is Bernard Gurdy. He's a landscape photographer living in Ireland, and we had an absolutely wonderful conversation about his lightning-fast journey into this arena. After Bernard, we have Carolyn Chang coming on to the show. We already recorded, and I promise it will be one of the better episodes. She's the chief operating officer of a large real estate company in Canada and has an absolutely incredible vision for the sublime in nature as seen from the air. I've also already recorded with underwater and landscape photographer Matt McGee, who shared his thoughts on the photographic process as seen from under the sea. Last night, I recorded with Joel Truckenbrode, an absolutely wonderful black and white landscape photographer living in Minnesota. I really think people will enjoy that episode as well. There's about 10 other upcoming recordings as well, so I plan on having a lot of content for you to binge on this summer. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. We'll see you next week.